Well, good morning. Whoa. We got a hot mic. I'm going to try that again. Good morning. All right. There we go. Well, welcome. Welcome to 116 Bible Church. I'm Sean. I'm the associate pastor here, and I am so happy and excited and blessed to see all your bright, smiling faces today, uh, ready to worship the one true living God with his people. And in light of that, I ask that you would please turn in your copy of God's Word, however you have it, whether physical copy or on your digital device, to 1 Samuel chapter 14. And by God's grace, we will be closing out chapter 14 today. <laughs> All right, so chapter 14, uh, we'll be picking up uh, in verse 47. I'll be encompassing 46. So we'll go ahead and start in verse 46. First Samuel chapter 14. Beginning in verse 46, if you have found it and you are able, I do ask that you would please stand in the honor of the reading of God's word. One more time, that is 1 Samuel 14, beginning in verse 46. And the word of God says, Then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. When Saul had taken the kingship over Israel, he fought against all his enemies, on every side, against Moab, against the Ammonites, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, and against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he routed them. And he did valiantly and struck the Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. Now the sons of Saul were Jonathan, Ishvi, and Malkishua. And the names of his two daughters were these. The name of the firstborn was Merah. And the name of the younger was Michal. And the name of Saul's wife was Ahinoam, the daughter of Ahimaaz. And the name of the commander of his army was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. Kish was the father of Saul, and Ner, the father of Abner, was the son of Abiel. There was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man, or any valiant man, he attached him to himself. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again so much, Lord, for this blessed time you have given us. Lord, this, this sanctified time that you have set aside for your people to gather together in one place. Father, and to lift your name high and to push one another to holiness in your son Jesus Christ and father we pray that that's what our time together this morning is Lord that it is a time of worship and honor to you that it is a time of sanctification and being made holy for your people We have just been blessed to read your very words. So, Father, we ask 
that your spirit would guide your people and show us Jesus. For it's in his name, the only name under heaven by which we must be saved that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. All right, so real quick, we're going to do a little bit of uh, review. I'm not going to go all the way back to the beginning of 1 Samuel. We've done that before. Um, and we've come too far to go back that far. So we're just going to go some a little more immediate context. So what's going on? Well, Saul has been made king over uh, the people of Israel. Uh, this did not come about in under the best possible circumstances. Uh, quite the contrary, the people uh, came to Samuel, the last of the judges, and told him that uh, they wanted a king like all the other nations had. Um, not a king so we can better serve our Lord, not a king so that we can be a light to the other nations, but they instead asked for a king so they could be like the other nations. Uh, Samuel, who was not pleased by this, took it to the Lord, and the Lord instructed him to go ahead and anoint the man that God would show him. And that man happened to be Saul. We are introduced to Saul, uh, and he is underwhelming. Um, he, he is, uh, we first meet him as he is looking for his father's donkeys. Not really no method to his madness, just plain madness. Um, going around looking for donkeys and just kind of meandering like, if I see him, cool. If not, whatever. Um, and then uh, they bump up. They don't bump into the, the servant with him. Takes him to go see Samuel to inquire about the donkeys. Samuel lays some big news on him and says, oh, hey, by the way, you're king. Um, and then uh, um, we see we see some other things uh, involving the donkeys, involving going home, um, and all that stuff. And then he's officially uh, ordained as king. Um, and things are off to a pretty decent start. Um, starts with uh, Saul find, uh, doing what his hands found to do, and what his hands found to do was to pummel some Philistines. Um, so. A seemingly promising start for uh, for the young king, uh, and then as he continues um, in his kingship, he becomes um, less and less concerned with the God who has put him in his position, um, even flat out disobeying him, uh, which leads to uh, some more. Um, unfriendly things. He builds an altar. Uh, he sacrifices. He's a king. He's not supposed to be doing this stuff. This is the job of a priest. He's just taking on himself the job of a priest um, and offering up uh, offerings. Uh, and as uh, things continue, things start looking bad in the battle against the Philistines. Um, so Saul's son Jonathan, um, he was mentioned in the passage we just read. He goes down, uh, gets a plan, Sneaks into the Philistine camp, causes a great confusion. Uh, they all start turning on each other. Um, and while he's gone, his father enacts this rash vow. 
that no man should eat until Saul has slain his enemies. And we talked about that a little bit the last time I was up here, um, how doing that to your military is just not very smart. They need strength to fight battles, um, and now you're robbing them of the means to acquire that strength. And uh, But Saul was more concerned about his pride than he was about uh, his people. So he makes this rash vow, almost cost Jonathan his life, because Jonathan, who was not there to hear it, uh, eats some honey. And that is the passage immediately preceding this one. Uh, the people of God, because um, Saul's going to do it. He's going to follow through and kill the man who ate, even though it was his own son. And the people rose up and said, you're not going to touch a hair on his head. Because he, with the help of God, brought us this victory today. And that section closes with verse 46, which we read, that Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. When Saul, or when Jonathan, I'm sorry, had heard about his father's vow that he made his soldiers take, his military men take, his response was um, how essentially how foolish that was of his father to do that to his to his military um, and one of the things he says was was had uh, had we been able to eat of the spoils of the Philistines would not our victory have been that much greater and we see here in verse 46 essentially kind of a fulfillment of that prophecy right we see uh, after this incident where the where Jonathan is almost killed for disobeying a word from his father that he wasn't around to hear. That Saul just stops pursuing. Why? Because his people are exhausted. He's run his people into the ground. And so they stop pursuing, and the Philistines, those who are left, just return back to their own place. Jonathan essentially said, we could have completely destroyed them had my father not made this rash and foolish vow. But instead he did. And it is here that we see um, not just the difference between Saul and Jonathan, but the difference between the king the people wanted and the king that God had for them. Right? We see, we see the king that the people thought they wanted was a man who, yeah, he looked great leading the charge until he stopped leading the charge. Until he started taking on himself the responsibilities and the privileges of other people's jobs like the priests. We see even his own pride getting the better of him and forcing his people to take this vow. Now, it wasn't for their good. It wasn't for their benefit. It was for the benefit of him. It was to make himself feel better. And so we're seeing here the, the real consequences in this rash vow and the aftermath that takes place. The real consequences of the people getting the king that they thought they wanted. Yeah, they won. 
but at what cost? What did it cost them? And had they not been so constrained by this man's pride, how much greater the victory could have been? And that brings us immediately into our passage today, verse 47. When Saul had taken the kingship over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, against the Ammonites, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, and against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he routed them. Now, first things first. The thing they wanted Saul for, he clearly was very good at. The people wanted a king to lead them into battle. They got a king who pretty much all he did was lead them into battle. And I don't know about you, I get confused by all the different ites in the Bible. So, in breaking my own rule just for you, I brought a cheat sheet. And I'm going to help you and help me remember who all these ites are. So first we have mentioned the Moabites. The Moabites are the descendants of Moab, the son of Lot, Abraham's nephew, by his elder daughter. The Ammonites are the descendants of Benami, the son of Lot, Abraham's nephew, by his younger daughter. These were the these were the people who came out of the uh, incestuous relationships Lot had with his daughters after the fall of Sodom and Gomorrah. The Edomites, the word Edom in Hebrew means bread. They are the descendants of Esau, the red man, the son of Isaac, the grandson of Abraham, the elder twin brother of Jacob, who is also known as Israel. The kings of Zobah, this one's a little confusing. Not a lot of information on the kings of Zobah, but I found some. Not much is known, but they appear to be a group of related or connected tribes, uh, each of which had its own chief or king. Um, so when it's talking about the kings of Zobah, this, is, this isn't a people, this is a bunch of people. Uh, this is a group of tribes that they are going to war against. And then we, of course, have the Philistines, Israel's main enemies at this time in their history, possibly descended from the Kasluhites, uh, which were a people from Egypt, and also a confederacy of uh, related tribes, each with its own king. They occupied primarily five cities um, to the west of, uh, of the Israelite border. Um, and these, these groups, so we have the Moabites and the Ammonites there, to the east. Sorry, I'm trying to do it from your direction. There to the east, we have the Edomites in the south, we have the tribes or the kings of Zobah in the north, and we have the Philistines in the west. These people are surrounded by unfriendly people. These people are pressed against on every side. And here in this verse, we see that even after Saul's grave mistakes. God still grants victory to his people 
on every side. Now, there may be a sense in which God did do some of this for the benefit of Saul, but I think primarily God was concerned with the people who are called by his name. If you remember, we, we talked about, or we talked about as we went through Genesis, that Bible study, these people were literally called by the name of God, Israel, struggles with God. These people were called by his name, and to glorify his name, and to bless his people, he granted them victory and allowed, under the leadership of Saul, for them to secure, essentially secure their borders. And a lot of these were even against people they were, even though distantly related to. These were family squabbles that erupted into tribal warfare. And that is that's hard, right? Family fighting is hard. I mean, and, and we're seeing here family fights that never ended. We're seeing here family fights that progressed until this one's descendants hated this one's descendants. And so that they and so they were at war with each other. Now there is a sense, I, I think, in which the people of Israel obviously were in an envious position. They were God's people. They were God's chosen people. They were called by His name. So there's there, there's something there's something missing from these relatives, these distant relatives who don't have that, and they know that they know they don't have that, but they want it. And they want to take it by any means necessary. Brother and sister, the world wants what we have in many ways. They want what we have. They know that we are called by the name of God. And they can't stand it. They can't stand that there's a people out there that's not them who gets what they want more than anything in the world. And what I mean by what they want more than anything in the world, they don't want God to be their king. They just want the benefits that come along. But they want to do it their way. So we're going to be pressed in on every side. We are going to be surrounded by enemies all the days of our life. But God has promised victory to his people. God has promised victory to you and me. It may not look like the victory we want it to look like. We may not be standing 
over our fallen enemies with sword in hand, yelling into the sky, our triumph yell. Victory might look like living your life on your knees in prayer, depending wholly on the only one who can bring you that victory. Victory might look like swallowing your pride and going over to make peace where there is no peace. Victory might look like a life where you simply live in humble certitude to your God knowing that regardless of what the enemies do to you, he will have the final say. Victory doesn't always look like ratchet in this, at least not in our lifetime. They will be ratchet. But we must depend on the one who will do the rabbit. Verse 48, And he did valiantly instruct the Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered him. This is another ite, another group of ites. The Amalekites are the descendants of a man by the name of Amalek, the son of Aliphaz, the grandson of Esau, one of the first and most aggressive enemies of the Israelites following their exodus from Egypt. It was during the early days of their, of their wandering in the desert that the Amalekites came upon them and plundered them. The Amalekites were particularly known for their raiding bands. They were, uh, they were a nomadic tribe. They, they wandered around and uh, looking for others to to ambush and to take all their stuff. And it is because of that that God had commanded and promised their eventual destruction. And here we we seem to have that, right? But we have to pay close attention to the language used that Israel was delivered out of the hands of those who plundered him. Why? Because Saul was the king the people wanted over the leadership that God had for them. Over, over even God's own leadership. So God gave them the king they thought they wanted to lead them into battle. And he never stopped leading them into battle. Because that is all he knew how to do. He didn't know how to he didn't know how to administer God's rule over God's people. All he knew how to do is to lead the people into battle against enemies. So that's what he did. He fought against every tribe on their borders. And therefore, his entire kingship was marked 
by war. There is a real sense. There's a real sense in which the Christian life in this world is marked primarily. I don't want to say primarily. Is has a great deal to do with war. There is a real sense in which the Christian life on this earth is at war all the time, 24-7. And while we are at war all the time, we are not a people defined by war. We are a people defined by our Savior. We are a people defined by the one who leads us into battle every day. Just like the Israelites at this time. They wanted a king to lead them into war. They got a king who did nothing but lead them into war. And so that war was looking And war took a lot of them. But he did valiantly. He did well. He fought well. And he struck the Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who fought with them. He did do that. And this is just like what we were talking about earlier, that this is not to suggest that there was no redeeming qualities in Saul. He clearly was a very skilled military leader. Where he fought, he won. But the problem was, everywhere he turned, he fought. While we're always at war, as God's people, as what has been described here on earth as the church militant. For a reason. We're described that way for a reason. It's because we are the church that is at war. We are not yet the church triumphant. Which are the saints who have gone before us into the presence of our God and King. We are the church militant in a very real way. In that we are always at war with the enemy. We are at war with the sin that still resides in us. We are at war with our old desires. With the old man who rears his ugly head far too many times in a day. But we are not a people defined by war. We are a people defined by peace in the midst of war. We are people who have been gifted, granted, blessed with the peace that passes all understanding. And that peace resides in God's people even in the middle of this hellish warfare that we are involved in day in and day out. Let the peace of God define you. Don't let the war 
that rages all, all around us and even in our very own hearts be what defines you. Because when the war defines you, you are no longer a people serving the rightful king. We become a people looking for the king who looks good leading us into the battle. Verse 49. And believe it or not, this is where it gets interesting. Now the sons of Saul were Jonathan, Ishvi, your translation may say Jeshua, or Jeshua, and Machishua. And the names of his two daughters were these. The name of the firstborn was Merib, and the name of the younger, Nikal. And the name of Saul's wife was Ahinoam, the daughter of Ahimaaz. And the name of the commander of his army was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. Kish was the father of Saul, and Ner, the father of Abner, was the son of Abiah. The writer here is doing something very interesting. What the writer here is doing is he's giving an abbreviated genealogy of Saul and also giving his descendants. So at first glance, what this looks like is the author is setting up Saul's house for a dynasty. It looks like, I mean, we see this throughout uh, many of the pages of Scripture, particularly Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles. We see where when we see something like this, the author is recounting the life and reign of the, of the current king and setting up to tell us who's going to be in his line the next king. But there's a problem with that. Saul's not dead yet. He hasn't even left the throne yet. In fact, Saul is still reigning, and this section starts with when Saul had taken over the kingship of Israel. So what the author and what the Holy Spirit is cluing us in on is that at this point, Saul's reign is effectively over. Because what follows in the next passage, immediately after this, is another disobedient, defiant act from Saul, followed by his rejection, his house as a rejection for a dynasty. His house is completely rejected. And Samuel tell, lets Saul know God has another king to rule over his people. So at first we see this section here where it's talking about Saul's family, uh, his kids, his wife, uh, even talks, talking about the cousin relative that he's got uh, leading his army. Saul looks like he's being set up to be the first in a long line of kings. But there's something coming. There is disobedience to the word of God coming. 
And that the, this next episode, the one that results in Saul's rejection, has to do directly with the Amalekites, who we just heard about. Because God promised and commanded that they would be God's words blot out. That essentially means completely annihilated. And Saul disobeys. So this, this setup is designed to get us paying attention, expecting one thing, and then something else happens. So we see Saul's son Jonathan who features prominently in the life of the next king. We see Saul's daughter, Nikon, who also features prominently in the life of the next king. But Saul himself, his line is cut off. All from disobedience. And I think this is nothing if not intentional. I think this is absolutely nothing if not God showing the contrast, getting us ready as the readers of his word to see the contrast between this king who, yes, God is using, but is the one that the people ask for. Versus the king that God always intended for this people to have. We are getting set up to meet David. We're getting set up to meet not just David, but the lineage of David. We're getting set up not to meet just David, but the dynasty of the Davidic kinghood. And what we see in the lineage of David comes not just a dynasty of kings but comes the fulfillment and the embodiment of the king who calls himself. Out of the lineage of David comes Christ. So that in David we have we have the king that God promised but not just in David as a person but in his line comes not just the promised king but the King of Kings. Comes the, Lord, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Comes the one who would not just bring, would not just lead us into, into battle, but the one who would lead us into victory. Not the one whose only purpose is to serve as a military leader, but the one who, by the words of his mouth, spoke into existence all that is and by that right serves as sovereign I think Saul appears to be under the impression that no matter what he does his kingship and his lineage are safe 
And in that way, he has taken the attitude of the Israelites themselves. Who, though they have been blessed to be called by the name of God, use that not as a an opportunity to reflect God's light to the nations, but as an opportunity to look down on the surrounding people and to refer to them all by a single name, Gentile. Saul appears to have taken this attitude as well. This position that he has been blessed with to serve God by serving his people, he is using instead to look down on them and abuse them. That's not a it's not a temptation we have to worry about today, right? We don't have to worry about that. That's not a big deal. We don't struggle with using the blessings of God in the most obscene way. We don't struggle with taking all the gifts that God has given us and instead of using them as a as a position to serve, instead use them as a platform to berate and to belittle and to denigrate those around us. We don't worry about that's not us. I don't know if you caught that, but that was sarcasm. That's definitely us. That is definitely us. We have a problem. We have a pride problem. And the human heart, even the regenerated human heart, is too quick and too eager to take the gifts that God has given us, to take the blessings that God has bestowed upon us, and to use them as weapons against our brothers and sisters and against the outside world. Don't hear what I'm not saying. Because what I'm not saying is don't use the weapons God has given you to fight the warfare because we are at war. And we do have God-given weapons to fight that war. My point is that use the weapons to fight the enemy. Don't use the weapons to beat down those in your life. There's difference between evangelizing and discipling and being a jerk. As Jeff likes to remind us, we are not called to be jerks for Jesus. That's not an organization for a reason. It doesn't mark it well. But Saul took this attitude. He took the same attitude the people took. He took the same attitude the people took when they said, we don't want you, Samuel. We don't want God ruling over us. That some invisible king can't see. We want a king we can see, just like the other nations have. 
So rather than giving them a king after God's own heart, God gave them a king after their own heart. Because that's the king they helped them. And we're going to close out with verse 52. There was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul. There may have been victory. There may have even been conquering in certain battles. But we have it right here. The battle never ended. The war was fought all the days of Saul's kingship. This is what this is what we mean. This is what I'm talking about. They wanted the good-looking guy who filled out that suit of armor, who was picture-perfectly in charge. And because that's what they wanted, that's what they got every day of his rule. So what we're seeing here is not just Saul's military successes. We're seeing the many, 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 many ways in which Saul falls incredibly short for the position that he's in. And though God brought victory through him in militarily speaking, we're also seeing the people's failures and choosing a king like this. And we've talked about this before, but sometimes it's hard, right? Sometimes it's hard getting exactly what you think you want. Because sometimes getting exactly what you thought you wanted turns out worse than you could have ever expected. Sometimes getting exactly what we thought we wanted doesn't lead to ultimate military conquest and peace. It instead led to warfare every single day. That's what happened for the Israelites. And so when we tend to want the gift over the giver himself, and we know that because we want something either he doesn't want for us or something that he has, he doesn't want for us in that way. But we want it, and by golly, we're going to get it. And sometimes he gives it to us. And sometimes it's the worst possible thing to get is actually giving us the thing we thought we wanted. Because instead of leading, leading to that victory and peace, it leads to warfare and heartache and loss. So my encouragement to you, brothers and sisters, as we leave this place today, and as you are pressed in on every side, by every kind of might, 
don't be defined by the warfare. Be defined by the peace that surpasses all understanding that is yours in Christ Jesus. And when the when the king, when the thing you thought you wanted more than anything else turns out to be nothing more than a pale imitation, put it down. Put it down and turn and look to the Savior. Look to the king. Look to the giver of gifts. And thank him for teaching you a very valuable lesson. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. God, we thank you. We thank you that when we want what we want above what you want for us, for the many, many times you say no. And Father, we thank you for when you do say yes, you are teaching us something. And you are teaching us at the very least drop the gift to consider it rubbish and to fix our eyes upon Christ. So God, we ask today that whatever desires in our heart are crooked, whatever desires in our heart that are wicked that are dark Lord those things that we want that aren't right for us replace them replace those desires with the desire the longing to be holy as you are holy and as we leave this place today, Lord, as we continue the warfare on every side, even within, Father, we pray that it is not the warfare that would define us, that we would not find our identity in the war, but in your Son, in the one by whose name we are called. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.